We have been in a journey this year through our biblical narrative, just kind of jive each other through the scripture story, starting with the ancient Hebrew story and uh, working our way into the, the monarchy period of ancient Israel in the, the scriptures. And we saw a few weeks ago that Saul was the first king, and Saul seemed like a good choice at first until he wasn't, right? Because he proved that either power corrupted him, which does happen, or power revealed his true nature and character. Either way, Saul was off the rails. And then we see um, that uh, Samuel confronted him and said that God was going to take the kingdom away from him and his family and give it to someone else, a different person completely, someone who was better than him. And Saul began to make a series of even crazier decisions and lost his mind, basically. And meanwhile, a shepherd, a young shepherd, a young man named David, who was watching his father's family's flocks of sheep, was a brave, sacrificial, selfless person caring for them, um, did his uh, part to uh, risk his own life for their well-being, was also a harp player and a songwriter. In fact, many of the songs in the book of Psalms that we have today uh, were written by David or by someone that David appointed later on when he became king. Um, but David wrote a lot of songs and lyrics and music to the Lord. And um, so he's this young man, but he was, un he was undiscovered. He was overlooked. No one knew who he was. And so his family comes by, uh, Samuel comes by and anoints him to be the future king and shocks everyone because no one saw him, but God did. God uh, saw that he had a heart for him. But Saul did not know that David was to be the next king or he would have had him killed. But Saul, in his crazy mindset, was uh, in a spot where David was brought to play the harp for him to calm him down when he was mentally unstable. And it helped. And then they went to war with the Philistines and David became a champion over Goliath and a, a leader in the military. And Saul loved him. And everyone in Israel loved David. David was the man. Everyone loved him for a while. But as the, the more the nation loved David, the more Saul became insecure and jealous and eventually wanted to have him killed. The problem was Saul's son Jonathan loved David in a special bond. And Saul's daughter Michael loved David and ended up marrying him. And then his family, and, and Saul tried to use some of those things to get David killed. He tried to privately kill David. And eventually he just came out publicly as David was the enemy and I'm going to put him to death. And the, and the nation was shocked. And it, was a, it became a manhunt. David was a fugitive. And we left off last week with a story where David had run for his life and ended up escaping out of his, you know, his room and, and then eventually ended up at a city called Nob where a bunch of priests lived. And he asked them for food and for a weapon because he didn't have anything. And they gave him, they had Goliath's sword stored there. And he took that with him, which was a good reminder of God's faithfulness. And then the priest there gave him some food. And then later on, Saul finds out the priest helped David, not knowing that, they, that he was Saul's enemy. They just, they just were helping what they thought was a loyal commander in Saul's army. But Saul was so angry and upset that he had the entire town of priests, 85 priests, and their wives and their children and their babies all butchered and killed for daring to help his enemy David. And it was just a sick story. Saul just lost his marbles, and, and everyone knows David is on the run, and Saul is after him. Well, we've kind of moved through, and I, I want to keep just moving through these stories because it takes so long to work through the Bible's narrative and the Bible stories. And I feel bad because it's taken so long, but they're hopefully interesting. But anyhow, I'm going to slow it down today. And again, I, at the risk of not picking up our pace and getting through more, we're going to slow down and look at two stories that are very similar. And the reason why is because I think they have a lesson for us today. I want us to not overlook it. 
But in the middle of that, I'm going to skip some other little stories because I have to do that at some point. And that's why you ought to go back and read these chapters for yourself. But just a few things that happen is, is interesting. One is that David goes into a city named Keilah uh, that is in, being attacked by the uh, Philistines and no one's helping them. It's one of the reasons why Israel chose a king. They used to be very tribal. If you remember when they first settled into the land, they had different tribes and they weren't unified under a centralized government. But... Um, then whenever one of their towns, one of their tribes would be attacked by an enemy nation, they felt isolated and God would raise up a judge or a deliverer or a rescuer to help that section of Israel. So one of the reasons they rejected, you know, was Gideon and Deborah and Samson and then eventually Samuel and Eli. One reason why they rejected the judges and they wanted a king is they wanted a centralized government where they felt like if one of us is in trouble in the future, all of us will stick together, that they'll come to our rescue because we're so fragmented as tribes. And so they chose a king, and Saul became the first king. Well, now one of the cities is under attack by, um, the towns is under attack by the Philistines, and they're being looted. But King Saul does nothing, that's his big job, does nothing to help them because Saul's too busy chasing down his political opponent, David, trying to crush him to take care of, of his kingdom. So, so Israel's over here just, you know, saying, you know, help us, and Saul is, is AWOL. And so David, who's a fugitive, hears it for himself and says, I got to step up and do something even though he's running for his life. Remember, we saw this last time, that 400 men came with their families to join David while he was running and say, we're with you. We have our own reasons. David's own family, his parents and brothers and siblings came. He had to take, put his parents safely out of the country. And he's got people with him now. They build a stronghold where the people stay at and some of the men stay behind to guard the, the, the others. And the other men go with David and kind of keep moving so that no one finds them because he's a fugitive. And so David, as a fugitive, hears that this town's in trouble and Saul's not helping because Saul's looking for him. So David goes to that town and he rescues the people. But instead of gratitude, what happens next is sad. Saul finds out that's where David's at. And now Saul comes to show up to that town to get David. And when he does, David figures out ahead of time that the people are about to turn him over and not stand beside him. You know, thanks for nothing, right? So he gets out of town. And by the way, not because they were bad. They were weak and they were afraid. That's why the Philistines were picking on them. That's why they were afraid of Saul's army. David just says, I, I helped them, but they aren't going to help me now. And he gets out of town. Well, then other people, like the people from Ziph, uh, tell Saul, hey, David's staying in this area. We, we see him around. Come, come here. We'll help you catch him. And Saul gets so close in his pursuit of David at one point that like, it says that David's on one side of a mountain and Saul's all on the other side almost just catching up to him when suddenly more news comes that the Philistines are attacking another part of Israel and this time Saul says, I better go take care of it. So he leaves and David barely gets away. And that's where we pick up our first story today um, in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. After Saul returned from fighting those Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the, near the rocks of the wild goats. So you know those places that you all have landmarks that no one knows if they're not from the area what that refers to. But if you're there, you know, oh, the rocks of the wild goats. You know, for us, that would be Shoe Corner. You know, that's not the name of it, by, but we all know where Shoe Corner is at, right? Um, so, you know, they're like, um, yes, David's by the rocks of the wild goats. Oh, yeah, that's pinned on my Apple Maps. I know right where that's at. And so 
Saul chases him there. And of course, as they pursue, well, let's read the next part of the verse. It says, at the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Okay, let me just, I don't really want to park here, but let me just take a few minutes to explain some context here. First of all, I want to say this. Hebrew is very difficult to translate into English. Greek is very easy. Hebrew is very hard. That's why there's a lot of controversy and hard to understand things. People do the best they can. There have been some people who've thought in the past that this was translated that Saul went in to take a nap. But, but the consensus is largely that Saul went in to relieve himself. That's the, and I've looked at all of it, and it's, it is a tricky translation, but this seems to be the consensus, and it makes the most sense, because as we're going to see in today's later story, Saul was not afraid of sleeping around the other soldiers. It just makes sense that he was going in. But I'm not, either one's possible, so the story makes better sense for you. I, don't, I wasn't there. Uh, maybe you were, I don't know. But I, you know, it was a long time ago. But anyhow, he seemed to go in to relieve himself, and it makes sense. Um, obviously, there's no 7-Elevens along the way or rest areas, no mobile gas stations with a great, very clean bathroom like they always are. You know, nothing like that. So you just kind of, you just stop on the side of the road and do what you got to do. And if it's a more serious job, you know, hopefully there's some shrubs or you have no dignity as a soldier. But um, Saul's the king. So Saul's going to, they're going to find a cave, and he's going to go inside of there, right? And they're going to keep an eye on the outside of the cave. And, you know, Saul's going to do what you do when you go to a restroom and you have a coat on or a suit jacket or something. You take it off and hang it up so you don't get, you know what I'm saying. Saul's going to disrobe a couple things, and he's over here in a private spot a little distance away, probably taking care of business. And, um, and, and, and he's there. So I'm, all that background that you didn't need to see what happens next. It says, but as it happened... David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. This is crazy. So David and his guys, again, they're not all together, not all 400, but David and his group were in the area keeping an eye on Saul's searching for them, and they decided to hide in this cave while they passed by, but they stopped in front of the cave. Oh, no. And then Saul comes in to do his thing, and everyone else is outside, and David and his men are back there saying, whoa, this is weird. And this is an opportunity that is presenting itself. At least that's what David's men thought. It says that they said, now's your opportunity, David's men whispered. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. In other words, here's what they're saying. God has opened a door. This guy's trying to kill you, and now he's in a vulnerable position and fairly defenseless. Here's your chance. It's over, over. I mean, hey, this is the right thing to do because after all, he's trying to get you. Now you got a chance to get him when he's a little bit defenseless. Do it. And here's what they're saying. They're saying God has given you this opportunity. We've all done this, haven't we? Let's be real. As people, we've all come to spots in our life where we said to ourselves uh, probably, well, you know, the door is open. God must have opened the door, so I must ought to walk through it. And I do believe that God opens doors, and I do believe that God closes doors. But we always, sometimes when we want to do something real bad, we'll justify it by saying, I could. The door was open, so therefore God must be in it. But here's the thing I want to remind us all is just because we could doesn't always mean we should. And just because there's an opportunity doesn't always mean it's right. And, if, if we, and we have to understand that there's, there's other principles. Sure, there's times when that's the, a clear answer to prayer, or open door, but there's higher principles that have to govern us that we don't throw out the window just because we could, just because we have a chance or an opportunity that we want. 
And so David actually listened to his men. He creeps forward and he cuts off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. And certainly, um, well, the scripture tells us that David, his conscience bothered him for doing that. And his men are like, are you crazy? Why didn't you kill him? And David's like, I feel bad for cutting off his robe because he's God's anointed king. This is so powerful. David said, I don't like that he's chasing me and I don't like what he, who, who he is or what he's doing. But he's our nation's leader. And I don't have to like my nation's leader. And I don't have to agree with my nation's leader to know it's not my place to harm him. To take matters into my own hands. It's not my place to do something just because I can. What's the right thing to do? So David doesn't. But we'd all, we could all benefit, by the way, from that kind of thinking about so many parts of our life. Anyhow, I won't get into all that. But it says in verse 7, after Saul had left the cave and had gone on his way, that David came out and shouted after him, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. And I want you just to picture the emotions that have to be rushing through Saul. He just walked out of a cave where he got his mind off the journey and, you know, did his thing. And he comes out refreshed, I'm sure, thinking he's leaving a cave where he was all by himself only to hear a voice coming out from behind him from the same place. That's terrifying right there. Like, wait a minute, who's, who, who's back there? And then he recognizes the voice and he turns around and there's the guy he's been trying to hunt down and kill. Apparently was in that cave with him and David's there bowing down and showing him respect and there's gotta be so many emotions going through Saul's mind right now. And as he sits there in silence and stunned, David speaks. David shouted to Saul, why do you listen to people who say I am trying to harm you? Now David is being very generous in this verse right here, in this statement right here. Because probably the only person, you know, Saul didn't need anyone to tell him that. Saul just believed that. Saul was cray cray. So when Saul's running around saying things like, um, you're helping my enemy who's trying to kill me. No, he's not trying to kill you. He's trying to survive you. You're trying to kill him. But David's not going to say to Saul, why are you the bad guy? Why are you trying to kill me? David's smarter. He said, I'm sure you must be getting some bad intel. You must be getting some bad information. Why are you listening to these, these other voices, even if they're in your head, you know? These other voices that are telling you, I'm trying to harm you because I'm not. David continues. He says, this very day, you can see with your own eyes that it's not true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. Because God put him there. He's the Lord's anointed. So, wow, you see God put him there. He's a bad guy. God is big enough to be in control. So God put him there. He's the Lord's anointed. They said, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to harm him. He continues, he says, look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. Interesting. He says, I brought the receipts. <laughs> I brought the receipts. So if in case you think I'm just, in case you thought I was hiding further back and I wasn't really that close, here's a piece of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I'm not trying to harm you and that I've not sinned against you, even though you've been hunting for me to kill me. David is taking an opportunity to, to speak that his mercy bought him. 
By not killing Saul, he earns himself the right to say his piece, basically. And everyone's listening. And David continues and says, May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. And this is, this is big. He says, I am putting my affairs into God's hands instead of taking them into my own hands. And I could have done something about it. Just because I could doesn't mean I should. And I'm going to let God be God. And I'm going to do the right thing even if you're not doing the right thing. Boy, that's just, that's just big. That's just a big way of looking at life. All of us, if you look at people that we're at odds with and at conflict with, what a way to perceive the situation. Well, David continues. We'll skip some verses. Verse 16, when David had finished speaking, Saul called back, is that really you, my son David? David had called Saul his father. In the, in the words we read earlier, David called Saul, his, Saul called David his son because that was true. David was his son-in-law. He was married to Saul's daughter. And Saul began to cry. And I can imagine the emotional well breaking open. Perhaps all of us in this room have been there before. Can you, picture a time, can you remember a time in your life when you were angry and upset about something and you were just furious and you were acting in, in anger and then something happened to, to get through, someone said something kind or something happened or you had to confront something and talk about it and all of a sudden the busting through the wall of anger became tears and all of a sudden you just went to, straight from being angry to just crying. Saul is at a spot where he's been so angry and upset about David hunting him that he's been chasing him down. Almost, he tried to kill his own son, Jonathan, for defending David, to sticking up for David. And then he turns around and he says, you know, he killed a whole a town of priests and their families because he thought they helped David unintentionally. And he's been so angry, but all of a sudden when he's shown some mercy, he, he suddenly, he suddenly, it cracks the shell of the nut and tears pour out. And Saul says to David, you are a better man than I am. For you have repaid me good for evil. That's going to be hard for Saul to say. Because if you remember a few weeks ago when Saul was a bad king and the prophet Samuel said you're going to lose your kingdom, God's going to give it to someone who's better than you. Those words had to be eating at Saul's unhealthy mind as, as he progressed down the, a dark path. Better than you, better than you. But now Saul's at a spot where he's so, he's so aware. And he says out loud to David, you are a better man than me. You're a better man than I am. You've repaid me good for evil. In other words, you took my evil intentions towards you, and instead of repaying me evil for evil, you were good to me when I'd been bad to you. And that makes you a better man. Because who does that? And Saul continues to emotionally talk and confess. Verse 20, Saul says, And now I realize that you are surely going to be the king, and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Saul's, Saul's basically saying, I'm not giving up the throne. I'm not stopping what I'm doing. But I know that in the long run, it's going to be yours one day. I'm sure of it. And then he makes a weird request. Verse 21, Now swear to me by the Lord, that when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David's family had to vacate Bethlehem. He sent his family to live in Mo his parents to live in Moab until the until the hunt for him was over, as long as he's a fugitive. His siblings are with him, and Saul's been trying to kill him. And Saul says, hey, when you become the king someday, when I'm, not, I'm not done trying to hold on to my throne, but when you inevitably become the king, promise me that you won't do to me what I'm doing to you. Swear to me that you won't try to hurt my family or my descendants the way I'm trying to harm you and yours. So David 
actually promised this to Saul with an oath. And then Saul returned home, and David and his men went to their stronghold. Now we're going to skip some stories, particularly one story, because I want to come back to it a a different time because it it deserves its own attention. So we're going to skip it and tell one other story today that goes with this one. But in between, I want to just point out one thing that happens in between. This is just one important thing. The prophet Samuel dies. Samuel was an old man. He was still alive. And even though Israel had rejected him to be a judge, they wanted a king, they wanted a centralized official government, they still loved Samuel. And so when Samuel died, they all mourned. It was like a national huge national gathering to mourn Samuel's death. And Saul was no doubt there. David probably not as a fugitive, but Saul was there. The nation was there. And, and boy, Samuel anointed Saul. Samuel anointed David. He was a father to many people. And they were grieving his loss. And Sam, Saul's back home sorting it all out afterwards. David's on his own. And we pick up our story in chapter 26 and verse 1. It says, now some men from Ziph came to Saul at Gibeah to tell him, David is hiding in the hill of Hekelah, which overlooks Jeshimon. These are the same people that ratted out David last time that Saul came looking for him. I don't know what the people of Ziph had. Did they love Saul or hate David? Or did they love Saul or fear Saul? Or did they just want to get good brownie points with the king? I don't know. But they're like, hey, David's over here. Come get him. We'll help you. And Saul suddenly, his brain clicks back into must hunt David mode. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's elite troops again and went down to hunt down for David in the wilderness of Ziph. And of course, they're going to be there for multiple days. They set up camp. They're going to sleep. And David decides he's going to kind of check out the lay of the land where Saul is camping at. Verse 5 says that David slipped over to Saul's camp one night to look around. In other words, he's going to take just quietly himself with a couple men maybe. He's going to just sneak over and, and see before it's too dark. You know, quietly. They won't see him because he's, he's a small number. He's sniper skills, you know. He's stealthy. He's going to watch and see where everyone's setting up camp. He's going to notice where Saul bunks down at before it's too dark to see. And he sees that Saul and Abner, son of Ner. I, I just think it's funny still. Abner, son of Ner. Abner, son of Ner. That's just how they name you, I guess, you know. So I, I, when I read it, I'm like, what does that mean? Ab, then? You know, the last name Ner? Abby, it's Abby. So Saul and Ab, the commander of his army, were sleeping inside a ring formed by the slumbering warriors. So picture the outer ring of, of warriors are out there, and then inside there's more people, and the very center of the whole thing, Saul, Abner, and, and David notices it. And I love David. I love young David. David isn't perfect in his life, and he has some pretty dark chapters later. But young David's pretty awesome. We've enjoyed his stories the last few weeks, I think, all the, the adventures. But, but this one is one of the things I love about David. Because if I'm seeing that, I'm like, okay, cool. Well, time to go to bed. But David has a bright idea. Verse 6, he says, who will volunteer to go in there with me? He asks a couple of his men. Like, who wants to go in there with me? And the answer should be, nobody, you crazy person. We're not going to go into that place. Are you kidding me? A bunch of people trying to kill us sleeping around there. He was like, hey, let's go inside. Come on. Who's with me? And so Joab's brother Abishai says, I'll go with you. You got to have a crazy friend in your life, don't you? You just got to have that one person. I'll go with you. So they go into the camp, and David's just going to, I mean, obviously, there's a few people probably awake, but, you know, you can't have everyone awake. they got to rest. It's dark. Who's going to attack you in the night? And everyone, who can even see what's going on? And so you can sneak. If you're a small group, not an army, 
You can sneak someone through into the camp. And David sneaks in there and goes all the way up to where Saul's laying there. And, and, and it says actually that, so David and Abishai went right into Saul's camp and found him asleep with his spear stuck in the ground beside his head. So he's laying there, his spear is stuck in the ground next to his head, he's sleeping. Abner and his men are laying there. And David, and, it's just a picture, picture of this sight, it's just a funny picture. David and his guy are just staring at King Saul, who's hunting him, laying right there. I just, hmm, you know. What trick do we play? Put shaving cream in his hand, tickle his nose, you know? I mean, what do you what do, you do in a moment like this? Um, put bubblegum in his ears? I don't know. What, what do we do as teenagers to kids who fell asleep, you know? So, but they're staring at Saul sleeping right there. And, and by the way, is, how do they get that close? Well, obviously they were gutsy. And obviously God's, uh, we put the God's side of it as, you know, they were all sleeping deeply. But also probably they're all tired and, most likely, there's probably a lot of snoring going on. I don't know if anyone here lives with someone who snores or not. Don't raise your hand if they're sitting next to you. That's not kind. But, you know, you know there's probably a lot of snoring going on. And he just, walk, I mean, who could hear some guy walking through the roar of the engines? You know. So, so David and his guy are right there staring down at sleeping Saul's body with a spear stuck in the ground next to his head. And Abishai decides to speak, well, whisper up. He says, God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time. Do you, do you hear the words this time? Can you picture what Abishai might be saying to David? He's like, listen, David, God gave you a chance to kill this guy who's chasing you. God gave you a chance once before and for reasons unknown to me, you spared his life. And by the way, David, how did that work out for you? Did it solve your problems? Because it's like he's still chasing you now. So apparently you should have got him last time. Now hopefully you learned your lesson last time because you got another chance. You don't always get a second chance, David, so don't blow it this time. And then Abishai thinks maybe David doesn't want to do the dirty deed himself. So he offers to help. He says, I'll tell you what, let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike twice. Now that's interesting, isn't it? He's like, I don't need two shots. That's a very gutsy statement. Give me one shot, that spear, I won't need two. Come on, let me go. And David had the chance to say, well, you know, I let him go before and I didn't do anything. It was somebody else. You've ever been around, you know, I've experienced people in life. That's how it happens. I didn't attack you because you upset me. I didn't go after you. I didn't hurt you or say some bad things. I didn't do anything, but, you know, those around me did it for me, you know, so well, I just didn't stop them. David could have done that. He could have been like, well, you know, it was a Bishai. He's hot-headed. But what does David say? Verse 9, he says, no, no, don't kill him. For who can remain innocent after attack, attacking the Lord's anointed one? He says he's still, he's still the, the leader of our, he's still the king. He's not ours to attack. And, and David is saying something that is both spiritual and honestly practical here. And I'll get to the spiritual again in a moment. We've already been there. But let me talk practically for a second. David's like, look, you don't survive. It is not a good life plan to kill the king, pragmatically speaking. Like, can we just be real practical? Go back to the cave a few minutes earlier. Had David killed Saul when he was relieving himself? At some point, they'd have been like, man, Saul's still in there. We should go check on him. Found him dead. They'd be like, someone else must be in here. I mean, is that really a plan for David and his men to get away? And let's be practical some more. If they kill him right here on the ground and any noise is made in doing so, and anyone wakes up and yells, you got to make it out to a maze of 3,000 soldiers sleeping around you. 
probably not a smart plan. But even beyond the immediacy of the moment, history, world history has taught us, Hebrew scripture history has taught us, that when people assassinate a king for whatever reason and take his place, they get theirs at some point. Whether it's two days later or two years later, you just don't kill the leader of the land without having consequences. And David's like, look, you can't do this and remain innocent. In man's eyes. Like, is, it, was, is everyone going to say, oh, well, why don't you be our king now all of a sudden, right? Because you just killed the guy while he was sleeping or on the toilet, you know? I mean, is, is there any path forward for him there? So practically speaking, but also spiritually, he said he is God's anointed. And David is going to resonate with Saul. And this is something that's so beautiful. Because what we tend to do, and all of us tend to do this, when, when we're at odds with somebody, we feel someone's against us or our enemy or our adversary, you know, adversary in some way, we tend to, to, to look at them as the other side. You know, we're at odds with them. They're, you know, the other side of the aisle, the other side of the issue with us, or they're, you know, they're just not, you know, it's us against them on any level, individually, collectively, we do that. And, and Saul's, you know, David could look at Saul as that person. But David looks at Saul and, doesn't just, and, and, and relates to him. He says, you know what? He's the Lord's anointed. Guess what? I'm the Lord's anointed. I've been anointed the same way. And so I could do something to him, but is that how I want someone to treat me if I was in his shoes? If someone thought I was wrong, if someone disagreed with me, if they thought I had something coming, is that what I want? Is that how I want people to treat me as the Lord's anointed? He found a way to look at him and say, it's not my place, and he found that connection. And I think that's so key when we can look at people that we're upset with and say, so it's me against them. It's, they're a person like me. Do I want someone to treat me that way when they think I'm wrong? When they're upset with me, when they disagree with me? Is that how I want the world to show me mercy and grace? And David said, it's not right. I'm not going to kill him while he's sleeping helplessly. And then he continues and he says this, verse 10. Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or not, <laughs> or he'll die at old age, or in battle. In other words, maybe he'll die early at God's hand or at, in battle at man's hand. Or maybe he'll live to be an old man. I don't know. But I believe at some point in my life, what did we see him say last week in Psalms 27? I will see God's goodness in my life one day. I don't know how soon it will come. I don't know when the deliverance will come. But I'm sure God will take care of it. Maybe soon and maybe later. But God will take care of it. And he says this. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one that he has anointed. Again, he's holding firm to this line. But, then he adds, but take his spear and that jug of water beside his head. Just take his spear out of the ground, take his water, water let's get out of here. We've been whispering too long, but you know, let's get out of here. So they leave with Saul's goods. And it says in verse 13 that David climbed the hill opposite the camp until he was a safe distance away. And then he shouted down to the soldiers and to Abner, son of Ner. Wake up, Abner! Can you picture this? Everyone's asleep. All of a sudden they hear someone yelling. Everyone wakes up in the dead of night and your senses are all heightened. And Saul's hearing this and realizing what happened once again. And David's like making fun of Abner. Hey, Abner, some bodyguard you are. <laughs> I come in the camp and took Saul's stuff. You, you, you're lousy. You stink at your job. You ought to be fired or executed. I mean, he's just like taunting him. And Saul's, come, and Saul's realizing once again that his life was spared. In verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and he called out, Is that you, 
my son David. It's always his son when David spares his life, you know. Is that you, my son David? And David replied, yes, my lord, the king. Why are you chasing me? What have I done? What is my crime? What gives, man? He says, but now let, let my lord, the king, listen to his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept my offering. In other words, if I'm in the wrong here, let me make it right. If, if, if I'm the one that's wrong with, towards God, let me make things right with God, with you. If it's me, if I'm the problem, let me fix it. But if this is simply a human scheme, then may those involved be cursed by the Lord. For they have driven me from my home so that I can no longer live among God's people. And they have said, go worship pagan gods. And David is explaining to, in this moment, just so as you know, what he's about to do next. He's about to leave Israel. He's gonna go into another country, actually the Philistines, and just go somewhere else because he doesn't feel safe in his own country anymore. And David's not saying, I'm gonna go and change my religion. What David is saying is, when you drive someone away from their homeland and their family and their beliefs and that what they know, you're driving them to a new place and new people and new systems of worship, you're pushing people away from God of Israel. Don't you realize that when you're doing what you're doing and you're harming someone for your own gain or you're acting out of anger or you're abusing your power, you drive people away? And you drive them away not just from you but from God sometimes? How many people have lost their faith in life because of the way they were treated by people who drove them away and left them with nowhere to turn? And David says, come on, man. Look what you're doing to me. And he continues and says, must I die on foreign soil, far from the presence of the Lord? Why has the king of Israel come out to search for a single flea? Why does he hunt me down like a partridge on the mountains? I am not a threat to you, man. Then Saul confessed, I have sinned. Come back home, my son, and I will no longer try to harm you, for you valued my life today. I have been a fool. And very, very wrong. To which David would probably say, yeah, you have been a fool and very wrong, absolutely. But I ain't coming home with you today. I've been there, done that, and bought that t-shirt. And there's no win. Because I'm going to go home with you and you're going like, to change your mind again and try to kill me. I'm not doing it. So, so David instead says, here is your spear, O king. Let one of your young men come over and get it. I remember I first read that, I thought, like a David, here's your spear, O king, and he throws it. Oh, well, hey, two problems solved at once there. Uh, but no, he leaves it in the ground and says, I'm out of here. I'm not coming back with you. Let your guys come fetch your stuff. And he continues and says, the Lord gives his own reward. This is so powerful. This is David's mindset. The Lord, he, David always saw the Lord in what was going on. He says, the Lord gives his own reward for doing good and for being loyal. And that might not pay off in, in man's economy. In man's economy, you might just like, you know, get trampled on for that, right? People might take advantage of you for that. But we're not supposed to be like the world or worldly. We're paying evil for evil, fighting to get ahead, doing what's best for us. We're supposed to look at life differently. And David said, I'm looking at the Lord. He, he operates differently, and he rewards people for doing good. He, he honors being loyal. And I refuse to kill you even when the Lord placed you in my power because you're the Lord's anointed. 
Just because I could doesn't mean I should. And just because I had opportunity doesn't make it right. And I'm not going to do wrong just because you're doing wrong. I'm not going to act like everyone else or the world's, would, the, my own people, people around me are telling me, it's okay, do it. doesn't matter. It's still not right. And then David adds, now may the Lord value my life even as I valued yours today. I'm putting my care in God's hands. May he rescue me from all my troubles. And Saul said to David, blessings on you, my son David. You will do many heroic deeds and you will surely succeed. Then David went away and Saul returned home. Now that's all all the further of the story. We're going to look at a couple of verses from Psalms here, but we're done with our story today. We could have moved a lot further, but I wanted to slow down and look at these two stories because I think there's something we should take home with us. Because David is in a situation where he had opportunity. David refused to take matters into his own hands and he left them in God's hands. Why? How? Because as we see in David's, David's life, he wanted to tell a better story. David was, oh, and we're going to see it in a moment here. David was always looking ahead at his legacy. I want to tell us something that all of us ought to hear right now. And this is so helpful if you'll let it be. Whenever you're in the heat, listen, listen, please. Whenever you're in the heat of the moment, it's always easy to justify whatever you do next even if it's bad. It's easy to say, well, here's why. I've had a hard day. Circumstances, they started it. You know, that's always a fun one. They started it. Um, we tell our kids, you know, that doesn't fly. But then I know a lot of adults running around, that's our story. Well, they started it, you know. Okay. They started it. I just finished it. You know, I have, I've had a tough time. You don't know the pressure I'm under. Well, because of my story, I had to do what I had to do. And it's easy to justify in the moment our circumstances And it's also easy to do things and in the moment tell our friends and those who are listening why, and it sounds like a good excuse. But here's here's something we all need to hear that works right this moment perhaps. But as time moves on, please hear me, when time moves on and that moves in the rearview mirror weeks and months and years behind you and decades behind you, what you actually did is what stands out and what sticks with you. And the reasons that sounded good at the time don't matter anymore. Say, well, I did these things, but here's why it doesn't matter. All that matters is, this is is my legacy. This is what I did. And all the consequential things that we blame, they they don't hold water. What what sticks with us is what we've chosen to do. That's what stays with us. And David said, I got a story to tell one day. He's looking ahead to a time when his kids grew up and he was a king and uh, and his grandkids were going to grow up and they have a chance to tell him stories about trusting God and have stories of his own and he didn't want his kids to come up to him. He he pictures his grandkids running up and saying, Grandpa David, Grandpa David, tell us again how you became king. Grandpa David, tell us about the time that you sneaked up behind King Saul while he was sitting on the potty and you slit his throat. You know, Grandpa David, Grandpa David, tell us about how, you know, you did what you had to do because, you know, it's a dog-eat-dog world. Or, Grandpa David, tell us about how you did the right thing when it was hard and how God took, God saved you so many times from a bad situation and how you trusted in him and how he took, he brought you through it in the end. What story? David had a story to tell. And he understood that. So every week in our series so far, we've been looking at some of the songs that David wrote to combine with our story. So David the Shepherd week, we talked about the Shepherd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. In the week, we talked about um, David the Fugitive. Last week, we did this Psalms 27. Wait patiently for the Lord. Be brave and courageous. He'll strengthen your heart. 
I want us to look at another psalm today, Psalms 34, just a few verses, because Psalms 34 is written, get this now, is written during the time that David is running from Saul while he's a fugitive. It was written during this very period of David's life. And in Psalms 34, verse 11, you can see David looking ahead. He's got a family yet. He's got nobody, but here's what he writes in his song. He says, come my children and listen to me. And I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Can you see him looking down the road and gathering? He's come here, come here, kids, gather around. I want to tell you how to trust, how to respect the Lord, how to trust in him and follow him in life, no matter what anyone else says, no matter how hard it is. Come here, come here, kids. Let me tell you a story. And then he asks the question in verse 12, does anyone want to live a life that is long and prosperous? And I I just do want to take a moment here and say what happens next is important that we don't misinterpret this verse as a weird promise. I've seen people go to the Bible and pull out some spot where God says, if you'll do this, you'll live longer. If you'll do this, your kids will turn out a certain way. It's very dangerous to take verses out of the Bible out of context and just blanket statement them and then judge others by them or judge yourself negatively by them. This, this, this kind of a verse does not mean that everyone who, who dies early didn't do the right thing or everyone who lives long must be awesome. That's not what it means. Things happen to all kinds of people. We're living in a broken world. We, we, things will happen to good people all the time and bad people all the time. And just, you just, that's how it goes. But what David's saying is, do you not want to shorten your life any more than, do you want to, want to cut it shorter than it would be otherwise by bad choices? And if you do get to live a long time, do you want it to be prosperous? We think of prosperity as money, but we really don't. That's just how we, ta- that's how we tangibly do. What we really want is what we think money will buy us. Peace, joy, contentment, whatever. Things that, we, that are deeper, that we're really, really after. And David says, do you want to get to, if you live long enough, you want to cut your life short, and if you do get to live long, do you want to have a quality of life? The kind of life that knows peace and joy and, and satisfaction. That's not looking over your shoulder all the time. That's not laying awake saying, oh, what have I done? middle of the night? Do you want to have satisfaction and prosperity? Do you want to have good years later on? Here's, the, here's, here's what you do. He says, then keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. It's interesting because he starts with what we say. And a lot of times we think, well, it doesn't matter what I say. It just matters what I do. You know, sticks and stones and all that. But David says, no, we sin with our mouth a lot. We do a lot of harm. A lot of harm. Jesus, you want to do something, understand, don't, don't lie and don't speak evil, and you guard what you say if you want to have a life that you'll be proud of later on. But not just what you say, but what you do. Verse, the next verse says this. Turn away from evil and do good. That's what Saul said to him earlier. David, you repaid me good for my evil. Like, you didn't go evil for evil. You didn't match my, you didn't say, well, I'm matching your intensity. David, you were good to a person who wasn't good to you. And that's a Christian principle. Again, that's not a worldly principle. But we're not supposed to be worldly. We're supposed to be like our Savior who did the same thing for us as our Prince of Peace and showed us through Calvary just reaching out and saying, I just want a relationship with you. And I'll take the bridge that's between us. I'll build a bridge. And so David says, listen, you want to say the right things and do the right things. And even when things are hard, when it's hard to do the right things because people are making it challenging for you, that's okay. You can still turn away from doing evil no matter what is prodding you to take matters into your own hands. And you can still trust the Lord and do good. And then he says, search for peace and work to maintain it. Searching for peace is a funny word because 
you know, sometimes you have to search for peace. You don't always have to search for drama. Although I've seen, I know people who I know people in life who seem to like to search for drama. But drama can come your way anyhow. But you know what you have to do? You have to learn to search for peace. You have to learn to look past all the things that can get you all stirred up and fighting and say, where can I find a path of peace? Where can I see a better way? And then work to maintain it. That is not easy to do, to work to maintain it. But David said that's the secret. That's one of life's big secrets. That's the secret to getting to a spot when you're older where you're happy with where you ended up at and you're happy with the story you have to tell. So yeah, but Arlen, you understand, I, I would do that, but you know, I, first of all, Arlen, I think you're meddling today because you're talking about something in my life right now that feels really personal. I've had people leave church before and say, it's like you were listening into my, my house or my car this week. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. Quick, Anthony, destroy the recordings, you know. No, um, no, we weren't. That's just what God does. God knows when we come to church what we're struggling with. And if, if you feel like God is, is reminding you today yet or in a few minutes here before we're done of something in your life where you're tempted to take matters into your own hands and do what you think is right because, bless God, you can, I want to remind us that just because there's opportunity doesn't make it right. Or if I say it earlier, just because you, you could doesn't mean you should. There should be some higher principles that, guard our, that dictate our actions than just opportunity. And the thing that you have to ask yourself is what David did when David's writing this psalm. He's got kids, he's looking ahead at his legacy. You know what that's called? He's looking ahead at his legacy. He, he's, he's saying, um, and you are, you'll, you'll do this too. You get to a spot where people will look at your life when you're older and they'll be able to say to you or about you when you're gone or say to you, hey, tell me again, tell me again how you crushed everyone in your way and you got ahead and you zinged that person and you put them down and you, woohoo, I love it. Or tell me again how you, man, you, you are a good person in a world of, of sharks sometimes and you did right by people who didn't always do right by you and you trusted God and how God took care of you and how you lived a life that looks like Jesus? Tell me again. That's, that's our legacy, folks. Here's the thing. You're going to have a story to tell either way. You're going to have a story to tell either way. So here's the question to send home with you. Here's the question. What story do you want to tell? Your life, again, as, as the heat of the moment goes on and all the reasons, the extenuating ex excuses don't matter as time moves on. All that matters is what we've done. What story do you want to tell? And I'm going to close with this analogy that it's what David himself, David had a son later on named Solomon. Solomon would write some wisdom literature. And Solomon referred to this principle I'm talking about as being prudent. It's where you stop looking at, we tend to hunch over and look at the, the things right in front of us all the time, what's going on, and make all decisions based upon the, what's right in our path right now, and therefore because of that I should, I should go this way or that way or do whatever. But, but a prudent person is one who straightens up and, look, and takes the long look, who looks ahead and says, I'm looking at the bigger picture. I'm in it for the long run. What, what will I feel, what will I, when I get to that point, what will I want to have done back here in this moment? I can't just look at the moment. I can look down the road and say, what will matter then? It's being prudent. Or if I can, I, uh, Lindsay, I teased on Lindsay here last service and this service. Uh, she's learning, she's got her permit. She's getting her 50 hours in a drive. So I get to ride. I think I'm a good uh, person to ride along with. I don't, I don't stress out too much unless she occasionally runs over a curb or a person. 
And I'm like, hey, you know, we should probably check on them. Nah, just keep driving. No, I'm just kidding. No, she's, she's getting her hours in, you know, and I'm in the passenger seat. And I t- I've told her a couple times, and she could, you know, one of the things to do is, you know, if you're kind of watching the road right in front of you, don't just look at the road right in front of your car and react. So pick a spot on the road way up and, and look at the center of your lane way up there. And it just kind of keeps you more steady than if you're just looking right, right immediately. Just look ahead. You'll still see the rest. But look at the spot on the road ahead of you. And even when the road's curving, look at the, the, road, the, the center of that lane as it curves. And just kind of let it guide you. You're going to drive straighter that way. And in life, sometimes you get pulled down into what's right in front of us. And it gives us reasons to do what we're doing. We're not thinking about the long road. Take the long look. Be prudent. When time goes by, what story do you want to tell? I know what story I want to tell. And today is my chance to write that story. One decision at a time. Even when there's conflict that stirs the pot. We'll pick up our story next week. Let's pray.